this shortage will get resolved. But what it does speak to is the overall vulnerability in the marketplace and the need for proactive alerts and a coordinating mechanism that can provide information to stakeholders that need it, that can take actions to protect the market when there is a shortage, which there inevitably will be. That's Vimla Raghavidran. Later we'll hear more from her about the factors causing the ongoing chemotherapy shortage. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce Mentech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, July 21st. Annie, thanks for sharing the news with me today. We only have a couple of stories to cover, so let's get started. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me. Bridge Biopharma was victorious in a critical phase three trial of its heart failure medication. Teresa, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Max Bayer reported this story. The heart medication is called a Caramidus. And Bridge Bio reported that the trial showed success in the primary endpoint, which is actually an aggregation of multiple endpoints, including all-cause mortality, cardiovascular hospitalization, and performance on a six-minute walk test. Regarding the risk-benefit profile, there were more severe side effects among patients given a placebo, including side effects that resulted in hospitalization. And how does that compare to Bridge Bio's past performance? Bridge Biopharma's shares skyrocketed more than 50% as a result of the victory. This is a huge turn after a previous interim readout in which the findings were opposite. At the time, the study found that patients given a placebo performed better on the six-minute walk test than those taking the treatment. So what is next for Bridge Bio? Bridge Bio plans to submit an FDA approval application before the end of the year. Another story that caught my eye was about Grail, the cancer blood test developer. Three women have sued Grail, claiming they suffered harassment, discrimination, and ultimately retaliation under what they described as a frat house-like culture. Each were high-level sales employees and in the lawsuits said Grail had failed to properly respond to their workplace complaints. Can you give us some more details? Yeah. um, So each is suing separately, saying that they were denied equal pay under California law. Connor Hale reported this story. Uh, The complaint said that they were denied promotions, received abruptly poor performance reviews, or were fired after reporting issues with coworkers. One case includes a claim of sexual harassment and groping at the company's holiday party after a male sales VP drank beer during an office meeting. Another complaint details how one plaintiff's coworker made racist remarks about Vietnamese people, such as this plaintiff, as well as in front of Grail patients of Asian descent. Grail, meanwhile, has been at the center of international antitrust cases after being acquired by Illumina. That is a multi-billion dollar deal, and it has been blocked in the U.S. and Europe, and appeals are currently making their way through the courts in both locations. What's been Grail's response to these new lawsuits? So in a statement, Grail said it investigates all reported workplace complaints and that it is, quote, confident that the claims are without merit, end quote. The Alzheimer's Association International Conference was held in Amsterdam last weekend. I understand that researchers are looking to use CRISPR in the search for novel Alzheimer's drugs. What was reported at the conference? 
While Annalie Armstrong reported this story, she wrote that two separate studies looked at ways genes can increase the risk of developing Alzheimer's and how editing them could cut the risk or at least protect the brain from the buildup of amyloid, which is believed to be a cause. Can you tell us more about those two studies? The first study comes from the University of California, San Diego. Researchers there are working on a gene editing strategy to target the amyloid precursor protein, APP. This protein is known to cause an overproduction of beta amyloid in the brain, which leads to plaque buildups that are the hallmark of the disease. The team looked at different ways to cut the APP to reduce the production of beta amyloid and at the same time increase neuroprotective actions. They tested the theory in mice and found that treatment with CRISPR reduced the amount of beta amyloid plaques and related markers of inflammation. They also improved behavioral and nervous system function in the mice with no undesirable side effects. And the other study came from Duke University professors in Amsterdam. They look at genes that contribute to the risk of getting Alzheimer's, specifically a gene that represents one of the most significant risk factors for developing the disease, APOE4. What did they find? The team used a CRISPR-Cas9 editing strategy to reduce that target gene, APOE4. They found that the lead candidate from the platform robustly reduced APOE4 levels in brain organoids, basically miniature brains that were developed with genetically programmed stem cells. In many ways, these mini brains mimic the brains from Alzheimer's patients, so they can be a decent study subject. These studies are still in the early stages, but anyone paying an even small amount of attention to drug discovery knows that Alzheimer's is one of the toughest areas for medical research. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing the news with me today, Annie. Yeah, happy to be here. I've got an important announcement. You'll want to grab a pencil for this one. Write these dates down. October 16, 17, and 18. Those are the dates of our annual Fierce Biotech Summit. It's a time where leaders and executives come together to discuss the future of the industry. AI and drug development, unique deal-making strategies, the latest innovations in oncology. We'll be covering all the important topics, so don't miss it. Fierce Biotech Summit. There has been recent and ongoing drug shortages across all areas, but one shortage that's hit pretty hard is of platinum-based chemotherapy drugs, carboplatin and cisplatin. The supply issues were first reported in February, but it has gotten more severe over the past months. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network has 27 treatment centers. In May, it reported that 93% of those treatment centers are operating with a carboplatin shortage, and 70% reported a cisplatin shortage. The two drugs are crucial for a wide variety of cancers and essentially serve as baseline drugs for virtually all cancer patients. There are no branded or alternative options available. Because of the drug shortage, hospitals across the country are having to make some tough choices, such as deciding which patients get treatment. But how did we get to this point? Fierce Pharma's Zoe Becker had some questions. So this is the first of a two-part series by Zoe on the chemotherapy drug shortage. So she reached out to Vimla Rigavatran about the drug shortage. Rigavatran is the Vice President of Informatics and Product Development at U.S. Pharmacopeia. Here they are. 
Thank you for joining me, Vimla. So we have heard from the FDA's oncology director, Richard Pazder, that the supply constraints are the result of a ripple effect after one manufacturing facility shut down their production line because the FDA flagged quality issues at the plant after an inspection. Um, I know USP's medicine supply map tracks the start of these shortages um, across the supply chain. So can you explain, I guess, how this ripple effect played out and how we got to this point? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think you're talking specifically about the carboplatin, cisplatin shortages yes. we saw earlier this year. Um, and it was a really interesting situation. So um, what we saw happen was that, as, as you mentioned, um, there was an inspection at a facility um, that produces a significant volume of the product, those two products that are coming into the U.S. market. Um, news of that um, uh, that inspection hit the media here in the U.S., um, I want to say in early January, <laughs> and that fueled protective purchasing by hospitals. Um, and we saw actually that the volume of products sold um, in the U.S. in Q1 of 2023 was, um, was higher than it had ever been since 2017. Um, and, but at the same time, there was a shortage. Um, and so why is that, right? And, 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 and the reason is that, you know, some hospitals um, who were, you know, informed about the facility and the inspection um, bought, bought, bought stock, maybe more, you know, more than they needed. Um, and they were also operating in a lack of context, right? Because they weren't, they didn't have information about when um, manufacturers would be able to resupply. And so, you know, if every manufacturer is saying, don't have a resupply date, I'm going to place an order with every manufacturer. And then, you know, next week, uh, the I, I get three times what I was, uh, you know, what I need for 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 that week, right? So, um, and so basically that's what happened, and so you had this, um, you had this the surge that was driven by sort of panic in the market. What could have been done is in early January, if um, you know, with enough sort of insight. Um, uh, you know, protective allocations could have been put in place by distributors and hospitals could have been given enough context on sort of exactly what the situation is. So we, we really think an early warning system could have helped with that. That's so interesting. So, I mean, how long do you think that the severity of the shortage would have been held off if that wasn't a factor, the hospitals kind of hitting the panic button? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? And the mm -hmm. counterfactual because, um, but of course, you know, I mean, eventually there would have been a shortage because, uh, you know, th that manufacturer had a significant market share, but it would have bought the FDA and other stakeholders enough time to increase supply. And the FDA has taken several actions. Um, they've um, uh, allowed temporary importation of a new product that wasn't previously on the market. Um, and they've uh, also worked with the manufacturer so that production could start up again. Right. So, yeah, I know the FDA is trying to mitigate it in a few different ways, but um, how much of an impact do you think that what they're doing now is um, impacting the supply of these two medicines? And then is there anything that manufacturers can do? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. The FDA is taking a lot of actions. We talked about the uh, the temporary importation um, and the work that they've done with the impacted manufacturer to uh, restart production. So those actions are going to make a difference, but it takes time. So, you know, allowing that early warning system to play out um, could have bought the FDA some time and could have really uh, made a difference. So let's discuss this early warning system, because I think that's kind of a common thread that I've been seeing. Um, How would that work in practice? Right. So I think um, the vision here is that an early warning system would be take all the signals in the market and proactively identify drugs that are uh, vulnerable to shortage and work with the impacted stakeholders um, to provide the right information to the right stakeholder that can use it to take actions to protect the market. So with the carbosis platen shortage, um, you know, working with distributors and manufacturers so that they can start to think about um, putting allocations in place or ramping up production and then providing hospitals with the context that they need um, so that, you know, they aren't doing the kind of protective purchasing that we saw. Um, And so flagging those drugs as vulnerable so that the market has time to make sure that there is supply in place um, before the shortage happens, that would be another function of the early warning system. Okay. And that's kind of what um, USP's uh, medicine supply map does, right? Kind of tracks those risks and vulnerabilities. Um, Who has access to it right now? And do you think it'll become something more widely available in the future? Yeah, so we're very consci- uh, uh, conscientious about who we provide this access to because what we certainly don't want to do is cause a shortage uh, by providing information that might be panic-inducing. So we're careful about releasing access. Um, we have a few um, subscribers um, that are in, you know, uh, manufacturers, distributors, and so forth that use it today to to do exactly what I I just described. Um, And we're hoping to work with uh, others, including the government, to to protect the supply chain. What does the map actually look like when you're looking at it? Is it like actual physical map or more like data visualization graphs? So what we've done is we've mapped uh, the finished dose form manufacturing locations and the API manufacturing locations. It's not complete information. Um, we have, but we have pretty extensive coverage on the, particularly on the finished dosage form side, um, and on the API side, um, our coverage is is uh, getting better. Um, we take that information as well as a ton of other information on risk to the supply chain. So, for example, pricing, right, is uh, drug pricing is a, is a significant risk driver. We have um, over 200 different um, features of a drug that we back test against actual drug shortages to identify and predict future drug shortages. So, in addition to that mapping, we also have these uh, uh, risk scores that are basically uh, predicting uh, supply chain vulnerability for specific drugs. Wow, that's very cool. A lot of resources there. And then you actually led the creation of it, right, and created the team behind it. So what brought you to NUSB to that point where you saw it was necessary to track these vulnerabilities and risk factors? Um, are you seeing more shortages now than maybe a decade ago? 
Yeah, great question. So uh, USB is uh, a 203-year-old nonprofit uh, standard-setting organization. Uh, we have standards, over 4,000 of them, uh, for most of the medicines uh, that are used in the U.S., and our standards are used in over 80% of the facilities uh, uh, registered with the FDA to make finished dose and APIs. So that was a great starting point to map the supply chain because we had a view into sort of what is made where that we then augmented with a ton of additional information. Um, and we started doing this work, um, you know, you know, over six years ago, and it was an internal project because it we wanted to understand the supply chain to inform our strategy. But then when COVID hit, um, we realized that this information could be uh, useful to others as well. And so that's what created the medicine supply map. Wow, that's awesome. So going back to drug pricing, which you mentioned earlier, I know is a big risk factor. Um, I've heard a lot of theories that perhaps the reason why there's not many makers of uh, carboplatin and cisplatin right now is because generics have pretty low profit margins and that often forces them to shut down because they just can't afford to continue operations. Have you seen a downward trend of generic manufacturers in operation and how big of a contributing factor is that in this specific shortage? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have seen uh, a significant pressure on on margins over the last several years. This is not even our data. This is, you know, um, data from IQVIA, um, and we have seen manufacturers either being forced into bankruptcy um, or exiting certain markets. Um, so it's definitely a trend that is likely to continue unless something is done about the pricing situation. Hmm, interesting. Um, so guess just to get more a bigger picture of this specific shortage, I guess, um, do you think that the supply is going to hit a zero or have we, it would be more of an ebb and flow situation? Well, the supply won't hit zero because, you know, only one manufacturer was impacted um, and there are others in the market. And then that manufacturer is working with the FDA to resume production. Um, and so this, this uh, shortage will get resolved. Um, but what it does speak to is the overall vulnerability in the marketplace and the need for proactive alerts related to that and the need for a coordinating mechanism that can provide information to stakeholders that need it, that can take actions to protect the market when there is a shortage, which there inevitably will be. I know one other possible solution that I've seen thrown around a lot is governments basically making contracts with manufacturers to keep a stockpile of essential medicines. Do you think that's viable or how would that even work in practice? I think all solutions that are uh, related to increasing supply should be examined and considered. And you know that's a great one. A shortage happens when there's a mismatch of supply and demand. And so Increasing supply is one part of the equation. We also have to really think about uh, demand and flattening the curve on demand, um, as opposed to you know uh, what we saw with the carbocisplatin. We've seen repeatedly with other shortages um, where there's a, a run on the market because of the panic caused by a lack of you know some information, but really a, a lack of overall sort of context. 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I've heard these drugs are kind of the backbones of cancer treatment, so I feel like it's going to be a challenge to do that. Um, so I know that the four um, risk factors that the supply map team have determined are geographic concentration, manufacturing complexity, price, and quality. Um, which one of those or a combination would you say is most instrumental in this particular shortage that we're seeing now? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think that, you know, many of the factors are at play here. So if you look at carbo and cisplatin, um, carboplatin and cisplatin, um, fairly low price drugs, right? Um, less than $30 a unit, uh, even though, but then the manufacturing complexity is quite high. They're sterile injectables. They're also cytotoxic, which means that they have special handling conditions. All those factors increase the cost of their production. Meanwhile, the price point is fairly low. And then, of course, we've had quality issues um, as well. And then geographic concentration, which is, um, you know, if you see the cancer, uh, the the market for critical cancer drugs, there is significant um, concentration uh, among uh, manufacturers. And uh, we saw that play out with the carbo and uh, platinum and cisplatin shortage. What is the typical lifespan of major shortages? I've heard several months is what we're looking at for this one. Um, but could it be longer or shorter? Um, you know, when, when we did an analysis of pediatric oncology drugs um, a few years ago, um, you know, again, many of them tend to be older, sterile, generic injectables uh, with fairly low price points. We saw um, the average shortage lasted for multiple years. Um, I hope that's not the case in this situation. Um, and I am hopeful because, like I said, the FDA has taken several actions to increase supply. Um, but, you know, uh, the market structure does not lend itself to an agile resolution. Mm, got it. Well, I think that's all the questions I had. Um, thank you for joining me, Vimla, and offering your expertise on this shortage in the supply chain. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.